0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News.
1: What are the ways that you exert effort that make you feel most alive? Don't constrain your answer to just work. You're welcome to think about your work, your job, but also think about your primary roles, your devotions, the things that you do on the side, your hobbies, your passions, your activities, your relationships. What are the different ways in your life that you exert meaningful effort in a way that makes you feel
0: genuinely alive? Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, this is In the Arena, a podcast exploring human potential. I'm Leah Smart, and every week you'll find me right here in conversation with bright minds and brave hearts, learning how we can improve our lives and our world by transforming ourselves. So Jonathan Fields is a maker. He cares deeply about making things that move people. Mostly, he says he wants them to come fully alive. And he also happens to run one of the top podcasts in the world – Good Life Project. His show and his work have been featured globally, and he's talked to some of the most interesting humans on this planet. Now, he and I both have shows in the LinkedIn Podcast Network. That's his other show, called Sparked. But we also share a core mission, understanding how people live meaningful lives, and then giving that understanding away. What Jonathan has built regrounds me in my own purpose, so it was an absolute joy to have him on the show. The first time we spoke a few weeks back, what was supposed to be a chat about work ended in a conversation about meaning, purpose, and discovering your own brand of spirituality. So this time around, I didn't want to plan much of anything. We just started with what was on my mind that day. I think you're going to find value in where we ended up. So first of all, Jonathan, I am sitting. This is hysterical because I'm I'm 5'10, so I can't cross my legs in one chair, but I am <laughs> sitting with two chairs with my legs crossed and my shoes off because I know that's your thing on your show. And I was like, I want to be comfortable and it feels right for this this conversation. So that's my current setup.
1: <laughs> it does. Well, I'm I'm wearing my fancy sweatshirt for you today, so that's oh, like, that. yeah, you know, like I'm completely dressed up.
0: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I feel like that's what makes for the best conversations, is like the most relaxed experiences. So I I thought I'd share three things that I've experienced today because they feel like they're in the vein of some of the conversations you've had, and and most recently the one I listened to with Rabbi Stephen Later. Um so so first, today actually is the first day that I'm hosting a Shabbat dinner. And I think I've told you and, you know, I've shared on this show that I've studied Kabbalah for a few years. And so that number one is like today is that day and really the the kind of The birth of it was that I was yearning for community, Mm. like living in New York City is such an amazing experience and yet it's lonely. And so this was my first experience after 10 years of being here of going, wait a minute, I really want community. And so I need to figure out how to create that. So that's one. Two is there's an interesting article circulating right now uh, on Business Insider about a guy who worked at Netflix for a number of years. He was an engineer. He made $450,000. And everyone's shocked because the article he wrote is that he quit. And a part of his article says, you know, I never – I didn't want to look at my tombstone or know my tombstone said, here lies Michael. He never did what he wanted to do with his life. (laughs) So he talks about losing motivation and and wanting to be an entrepreneur and deciding to pursue that. And the last one was a friend this morning sent me a uh, New York Times article that just came out that's called – 400 years ago, they would have been called witches, but today they can be your coach. And it's all about the <laughs> rise of spiritual coaching. So, I mean, I feel like all of these things are in the vein. Where do we of the start co- with
1: that? <laughs> 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 it's like any one <laughs> of those could take us the entire conversation.
0: <laughs> I know. I mean, seriously, it's it's like the word that comes up for me as as we start to play with this show and figure out where it's going is, you know, the zeitgeist. Like, what's happening right now? What are the societal conversations that we aren't having, that we're trying to have, that we don't know how to have. Um so yeah, those are kind of my three things. And I'm I'm curious what stands out to you? <laughs>
1: they all stand out, like for, for different reasons, but I think they probably all speak to like a lot of the similar like the same roots. You know, like we are fundamentally so I'm 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 definitely much more on the introverted side of the social spectrum. Um and, and I'm really good with solitude and with quiet and with just being in my own maker cave and just like doing my own thing for long windows of time. I I'm happy going hiking with no earbuds in for hours in the mountains being alone. It's, it's great with friends too. But um, but even the most sort of solitude loving person, you know, we are, we exist. Our DNA literally has embedded a need for belonging, a need to be in communion with other human beings. Um, that doesn't mean mass numbers of human beings, but we have to be in relation. We know ourselves best in relation. We exist in the world, but we need it to feel um to feel content, to feel alive, to feel like we're nourished. Um, And for a really long time, we looked to institutions um, to provide that work for generations was a huge source of these are my people. These are who I'm with, you know, um, not necessarily, again, everybody, but usually you found a couple of people and you were spending seven to eight hours a day. Now it's more like 10 to 12 hours a day. Um, actually, now, it's like nothing because you're at home with your dog. Um, and um, and then, you know, even before the last two years, tons of research started showing that work is actually really not serving that purpose anymore. So where else did we get it? Um, faith, uh, religious organizations, institutions, communities. And now we know that over the last generation, like the biggest uh, affiliated group of people are those who non-affiliate with religion, with any kind of organized religion. And then we turn to local organizations, you know, like the local clubs, local teams, local trade groups, local gathering places, social places. And those have largely disintegrated um, under the sort of the weight and the pace and the acceleration of just modern life, you know? And a lot of us have been walking around long before these last couple of years, Feeling a sense of underlying and persistent angst and anxiety and discontent and malaise. And, and just like we're not quite feeling the way we wanna feel. Um, and there may be many things contributing to that, but I truly believe that there is this latent crisis of belonging that we have all been feeling for a very long time that is in no small part fueling this underlying discontent. But we haven't been able to put a finger on it. Um, but if, and I think we're starting to realize that now. I think because we've been like that has been amplified a hundredfold for so many people, as all of a sudden everyone was sort of like, "Oh, I'm at home all day every day," and sort of the amplification of that experience has brought it. It's brought it to the surface. Something that was sort of like underneath, now it's on the surface, and people are like, "Oh, this is affecting me in all sorts of ways." That I I kind of can draw the line from the sense of isolation and disconnection now to this feeling that I'm having, but I think we're still missing the point that on a a, a much harder to identify level, that line has been in existence for a couple of generations now and the pain that it's been causing, it's just been getting deeper and deeper. So, you know, when you talk about being in New York City and feeling like you are surrounded by, what is it, 9 million people, it is really easy to feel incredibly alone in New York City. I lived there for 30 years, my entire adult life. And I lived in a lot of different apartments when I was in the city. And I could probably count on the fingers on one hand, the names of the people that I knew who were my neighbors in my buildings over a 30 year window in New York City, Mm -hmm. right? The flip side is if you want to be even just the slightest bit intentional about either creating or stepping into a community or like you're doing, like you're about to host your first Shabbat dinner, you know. The, it it's incredibly easy to do it. Um, it's incredibly easy to find your people, to find the people who you relate to, who you want to be in conversation with, who you want to be open and vulnerable with. Um, in a place like that, the, the, the thing is, you know, they're there. Um, But it sometimes takes some time to find where there they are.
0: (laughs) Well, and isn't that almost more frustrating? Yeah, it can be. You're going, I'm sitting in a city of nine million people. I know there's some interesting people I'd want to spend time with versus like, I live in a town of twenty thousand. This just isn't working. Like you can you can sort of make the equation and work when you live in a smaller place and feel like you've outgrown it or that it just isn't for you. But to live in a place that it feels like so many people are and you haven't found the belonging is is almost it almost makes it like I think I think uh, Rabbi Later said this. It's like trying to eat the menu. I don't know, I felt like that yeah, something like totally.
1: And it and it can bring on the sense of shame. You know, because yeah. you're like, what is wrong with me that I live in the city like with it's this stunning diversity of humanity and I can't find two, three, four or five people that I just want to be with on a regular basis. And um, and part of it is, is also in, in a culture like New York, you know, um, there every, everybody goes there to a certain extent to quote make it. <laughs> You know, so the work ethic in New York is like nothing I've ever seen in any city on the planet, or at least I should say the work ethic that is innately derived rather than sort of like superimposed by a culture. You know, people literally go there because they want to work really hard and because there is a stunning amount of opportunity, especially in different industries. But that also means that a lot of people are there in part because they're devoting their lives, especially in the early part of their lives, to just working nonstop. And that... Not only, you know, dissociates them from other human beings, um, but, um, you know, it dissociates them from themselves and from their life and from their neighbors and from their local community. Um, I, I literally like remember how happy I was when one day after living in the neighborhood for a few years, like I went into the deli where I would go every morning to get my cup of coffee and like my bagel. And you know the person knew my order. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "You're part of my community now. I'm part of your community." Like this person sees probably like a thousand people a day, and they know my order. And there are little things like that, little indicators that be like that, that give you that sense of oh, like I'm a part of something here.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanna I wanna kind of go back to this conversation or this idea of the the you said latent feeling or desire for belonging. You know, for me, it wasn't until I listened to Brene Brown and started understanding belonging versus fitting in, that some of the things you're talking about came to the surface. I think about my my parents putting me through school. I always had places where I could fit in. I did sports. I was going to church. I mean, all of these different things that created uh, these different communities. Um, what I always experienced as a kid, though, was I never quite felt like I fit in any one specific community. For any period of time beyond just like, you know, we ran races together. We played soccer together. I was at church on Sunday. But it never felt like it would shift beyond the period that I was doing that thing. Um, so I've always been one of those people who was like, I don't know exactly where I belong. And so mm. I'm in this phase now of noticing like it is, you know, as, as uh, I think Maya Angelou said, it, like I belong everywhere and nowhere, right? Like I belong to myself. And so it's this learning of How do we learn how to belong to ourselves, and then how to belong to each other?
1: Yeah, it's and I think it's a really nuanced conversation. I love sort of like your lens on it, and what what I've come to feel is that um, whether we realize it or not, we all create avatars of ourselves. And as we walk through our day, whether it's in a professional setting or a friend setting or at a dinner party where we've been invited for the first time or a social setting, you know, we tend to present the avatar to those other people that we think is the avatar that's going to make us fit in or be accepted or belong. Um, and not infrequently, that representation, like the sort of like the image that we want to step into a conversation or a relationship with does belong. It is welcome. Problem is, like, there's often a gap between the avatar that we present to the world and who we really are. So We have this really weird experience of cognitive and emotional dissonance when we show up, we present this thing to the world that is in part us, but but not really fully us. It's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit of us and it's a little bit of what we think people will want us to be in, in a relationship or in a community and people open their arms to that representation, but because it's not actually fully us that part of us that is, you know, like our deepest essence, is never actually embraced. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always held back. So we have this weird experience of saying, "Okay, so the, the the representation of myself that I'm sort of like bringing to a dinner party or a club or a community or a job, you know, people seem to really like that person. Like, how awesome is that? And yet, was well, but why am I still feeling like I don't quite fit in? Why am I still feeling like I don't quite belong? Why am I still feeling like they don't quite know me and I don't quite know them? And And I think so often we don't realize that a big part of it is on us because we're not actually presenting um, our whole selves to them. We are presenting the avatar, which is part of our whole selves and also part of fiction that we think people will readily embrace. And that's what people are saying yes to, but we're never giving them an opportunity to actually say yes to the whole selves um, that we, you know, who we are. And because of that, you know, we always have this lingering sense of I'm never known. Um, And like, even, you know, if people embrace this representation, you feel like you as a human being, the full, like the fullness of who you are um, is never embraced, never feels that sense of belonging. And it's because you never bring it to those relationships, you know, and and we don't because it's scary. I mean, this goes to the name of your podcast, <laughs> you know, because that means bringing our whole selves into the arena,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: and that is terrifying because it's a vulnerable place to be. Because if they reject your avatar, well, it wasn't entirely me.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right. If, you're you're kind of safe because you have other right. avatars.
1: <laughs> right. You know, it's like if you write a piece of like something for like w- whoever it is, or you make a painting or whatever it is, and. And you're kind of creating it because you think you know what a market wants. So you're like, you know, you've got a little bit of your voice in it, and but you're also giving what you think the market wants. And then the market tells you, I don't want it, right? Well, it hurts, but it doesn't hurt because you can always make the excuse and say, well, it wasn't really me. You know, it was just, I didn't quite get what the market wanted. Whereas if you're just like, I don't really care. I'm just, this is my heart and I'm going to lay it out for all to feel and touch. And, and then people reject that. That's really hard. But if you never give people a chance to reject it, you also never give them a chance to embrace it.
0: Do you think it's that people don't know fully their whole selves or is it that we all hide the same parts of ourselves? Like, what have you seen?
1: Yeah, I I think it's probably a combination of both. You know, how many people have taken a course in in high school or university or, you know, like any sort of uh, adult education that was all about knowing yourself better. Not a whole lot of people. <laughs> you know, academically, it's rarely offered in any sort of sort of like traditional academic setting. So you're talking about like a small subset of people who reach a point in life, and it's usually fueled by some sort of crisis where they're like, I need to go deeper and understand what's happening. And what they're really saying is, I need to go deeper and understand who I am. And that's the thing that sort of like sets us on that journey. So I think part of it is, you know, we don't know how to, um, Bring ourselves into relation with others. Part of it is we just don't know who we are and what we care about, what our essence is really made up of. And you know, truth is, just depending on circumstance, there's a certain amount of privilege that goes into the opportunity to actually invest the time, and the effort, and the money in actually doing that exploration. And it is not easily and readily available to all people. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's not an equal playing field. In at least in my mind, in that context, you know, people can start the process, but you know, it's a. There's a lot more nuance to just saying like, go do the work, take the classes, do the workshops, go on retreat, do yoga, all this stuff. There's more to it than that, and that there's a lot of there's a lot of life that can get in the way, depending on who you are and your circumstance too.
0: We're going to take a quick break. Before we go, you know, in this kind of conversation, nuance, complexity, and social norms are all present in how we show ourselves to the world at different moments. Remember, Jonathan called those versions of ourselves our avatars. There are times we have to discern which avatars are safe, and it's often based on the amount of trust that we've built in an environment. But sometimes we keep that avatar up even when we don't need it, and it prevents us from being fully seen or known and ultimately from belonging. So in the spirit of increasing our chances of real belonging, think about what avatar you could try dropping, especially when you're with someone you trust. Interviewing the interviewer is like getting spark notes on their topic. Jonathan has interviewed some of the most influential people in the world. So when we get back, I'm getting the spark notes on what he's learned about meaningful living through 10 years of hosting Good Life Project. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA.
2: From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Businessweek, Fortune, and Wired, And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets.
1: The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all.
2: Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career.
1: I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion.
2: Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort... And your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And we're back with Jonathan Fields, creator and host of Good Life Project and Sparked. Part of the goal of this show is how do we, how do I give what I've learned in ways that feel accessible and practical to people who may never even think about this, or may feel like they may never have the opportunity to pursue something like this because of time, resources, etc.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I I kind of look at podcasting as one of the things that's a, that's a bit of an equalizer. It is a a, a delivery medium that allows you to. Um, to do the listening in all of the in-between spaces. Like you're on a subway going from one place to another. You can pop on your headphones and listen for 15 or 20 minutes. So there's a really interesting equalizing effect in my mind in um, the world of podcasting. And I think rarely, people rarely ever talk about that in terms of um, inviting more people to the party. Now, granted, um, the creators, there's still a huge amount of uh, work that needs to be done and like who is actually producing these things and what voices are being centered and what lives are being centered. Um, but I think there's so much potential and possibility in the medium itself.
0: Thinking about your show, you've been running your show for what, 10 years?
1: 10 years, yeah. Huh?
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, congratulations. Thank you. You are like other, you know, show hosts are giving people access to um, conversations and ideas and stories that can help support their own development, but that they may never hear if they aren't tuning in to you. And so I'm curious, like, what have you learned in all of this?
1: Yeah, well, probably the biggest thing is that, like, everything I thought I knew, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) What tends to be really distinct over a decade of sitting down with some of the most incredible people in the world and also just, like, next door neighbors and people who are incredible in their own right is... Um, We all have our own stories, and our own stories have incredible value, um, both to us and to those who might um, benefit from hearing them and somehow have something, you know, a fire lit in them or a sense of revelation or awakening, um, simply because something that they have heard as a concept a a thousand times before delivered in the form of one person's story that they can relate to Hmm. in some way, shape, or form somehow just opens your heart, opens your eyes, opens your mind. and, and what I've come to learn a lot is that um, the power of an individual's story often is really where the value lies because the fundamental concepts of what it means to live a good life, we're all looking for the hack, we're all looking for the technology, we're all looking for the shortcut, you know, we're all looking for the new shiny object. There is nothing new, there is nothing shiny, there is no like object. You know, it's, it's a set of fundamental principles that we have known for time immortal. Um, And yet, you know, we don't want to hear them because most of those principles require work over time. And we just, the notion of adding more work and over a longer window of time in the lives that already feel like we don't have that, um, we're looking for the short, sweet solution. Um, Mm. And I think two of the big things are like, the value of other people's stories is incredible. Um, And also, there are no shortcuts. You know, there is, it, it, it's about meaningful contribution. It's about deep and nourishing um, connections and relationships. And it is about optimizing your state of mind and body. And we all sort of like can do that in whatever ways are appropriate for us. But rarely does that happen in the blink of an eye. You know, they're all about practices that unfold and the, where the, the value and the impact stacks over a window of time, often years. You know, I've had a, a meditation practice for about a dozen years now first year or so, like there was nothing like that I could sort of like you know, objectively say was really super good coming out of it. <laughs> you know, it was a slog to this day. Most of the time, a dozen years later, it's still a slog for me. And yet I've been doing it long enough on a pretty much daily basis that I've, I've been able to become aware over time of the fact that, oh, like this thing just blew up in my face. And 10 years ago, I, I probably would have been completely knocked down and reactive and fretting and spinning. And now I'm still going to have to figure it out, but I'm able to breathe through it with a lot more equanimity and be much more um, responsive than reactive and trying to figure out how do I do this in a way that, you know, is right action and right thought and right right language. Um, So that's a lot of what the learning has been like. And the biggest gift for me has been just the opportunity. I mean, I've spent 10 years sitting down with people and just going deep into ideas and stories that matter. Hmm. You know, that's that's not a bad way to spend a decade of your life.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love being able to see someone who has gotten the opportunity to do that. Um, you know, when you, we think about belonging, which was where we started, like what what's the connection between stories and belonging?
1: <sighs> it's a really interesting question. Um, I, I think we connect in no small part. So how do we know each other? How do we know another human being, right? Um, we know them most through story. Um, so I can show up and I can basically give you a resume. Like I can sit down, like, let, let's say you have your first Shabbat dinner tonight, right? And mm-hmm. there are like a dozen people and I show up and like, okay, everybody bring your resume. We're going to trade them around. And like We'll give 15 <laughs> minutes at the beginning so you can like scan it and really get to know each other. You're like are you kidding me? (laughs) You know, it's like we don't know each other through information or accomplishments or achievements and things like this. We get to know each other's heart. We get to know each other's point of view. We get to know each other's minds through stories. Um, And so to me, you know, story is, is, is the gateway to belonging because it allows us to know each other in more of the context of our lived experience and and identify places where that lived experience intersects.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the most important things you've shared and that you've learned in the last 10 years is the power of stories. So in order to share our story, we have to know our story. And then when we share our story, we can create belonging by showing up with others and being willing to share said story, right? And then we're either welcomed in or not, hopefully welcomed in, but that's kind of how if I come up, I'm a mind centered person. So I'm like, here's the equation. But <laughs> would you say that's the way?
1: So, yes, and um, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll take the improv answer, right? Um, yes, and I love there's, and. A, there's <laughs> a really big qualifier here. Um, and I'll tell you a story. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, I've, I've, part of the way that, you know, I've earned my living and that I in, enjoy, you know, contributing to the world is I speak, you know, I've spoken on stages of all sizes that, so, you know, like, five people around a lunchroom table, two thousands and thousands of people in big theaters. Um, and when you're coming up as a speaker, often what you're told is, you know, like you've got to have your signature story or your stories. So what you do immediately is you start scanning your mind, like... What are the stories worth telling? What are the big stories? What are the big accomplishments? Where have been, have been just like completely slammed and destroyed? And and where's my redemption story? I made it back and all this stuff. And you're looking for those big things because you want to show up in front of other people and have these like stories, quote, worth telling. Mm-hmm. And what we don't realize is that every single day we open our eyes and we step into our day and, and we're, we are opening the book to a series of little micro stories with everything that we do, right? And those micro stories are actually the ones where we relate most easily to other people, because those are the shared experiences that we all have. So what I would say is, is be really careful of discounting all the little stories that happen along the way. That that funny thing that like happened in a cab when you forgot your mm. wallet. That little moment over here, um, because those are often the things that that say something about us, and they're really relatable. And you don't have to say, well, like this, my story isn't good enough to tell yet, or it's not big enough, or I don't have something that would really entertain the room. It's not about that. So like what I started doing as a speaker was in the beginning, I would make, I, I'd start to create like a, you know, like a list of stories that I thought were really big stage pieces. And then I would hear like get you know, talk to friends of mine who are 10 years down the road from me. And they're like, dude, no. <laughs> <laughs> Like you can tell that story and maybe like it gets woven in, but the things that that are going to make people smile and laugh and relate and connect to you, connect to each other. It's those silly little moments. It's that, you know, like self-talk where you're just spinning and you realize how absolutely absurd it was in the middle of this situation. And, and you just started cracking up and people then looked at you like you were literally weird because you're laughing and there's nothing funny happening. And, and those are the stories, you know? So, so just be really Larry of judging your life um, as not having lived stories worth telling because everybody wakes up and almost every day has moments that are the stories of our lives. And that's where the juice of belonging and relation really comes from.
0: You know, it's funny. So so you're making me think like I've read some articles recently that have said don't discount small talk. Um. So I typically tend to have, have enjoyed like big talk conversations. Let's talk about the big stuff, the meaty stuff, things like what we're talking about today. And I'm like, my most recent micro story was that I, for the first time in my life, got a pair of pants hemmed had never or I got got the waist taken in. I have always bought pants as as a, you know, as a woman who's like shapely. They've never fit in the waist. And so I had this amazing experience where I went to my cleaners around the corner. He knows my name and I don't have an order, but he knows my name when I go to the cleaners and he fixed them. And I was like, I I wanted to cry, but I didn't tell anyone. I haven't talked about it. I was just like, this is amazing. And now, you know, it seems like even as silly as that is that that's a way to build belonging
1: yeah totally it's like these little moments it's the micro moments you know that I think really do it and and it's interesting that you brought up the notion of small talk which I've like for my whole life I'm like oh I really don't want to deal with that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Let's just talking about really cool deep stuff it's like um, why
0: I don't go to networking events <laughs>
1: right um, and at the same time you know I, there is an interesting value proposition in it so I, don't know, I want to say six or seven years ago, there was an article that appeared in the Modern Love um, section of the New York Times, by, written by Mandy Lem, and it was like, if you want to fall in love, do this. And in that article, um, she talked about how she discovered the research of um, a Professor Arthur Aron, yeah. right at Stony Brook, and and introduced this notion of what became the sort of legendary thirty six questions, right? Mm-hmm. A set of thirty six questions where he created them and then in a lab would bring students in who were strangers before and have them ask each other these 36 questions. And by the end of that 45 minute window, many of them reported that they felt more connected, more intimate, like a, like a deeper friendship with those strangers than they did with people they'd known for years and would call friends. And what was happening in part was that he created a, three sets of questions that started really surface level and then slowly went deeper and slowly went deeper and slowly, and part of what he learned, and this goes to like the small talk value, Is that we develop relationships by mutual progressive revelation, right? So, you know, mutual means we're both doing it, it's not one sided. Mm -hmm. Progressive means most people won't start with the really thorny, complex, like vulnerable stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you gotta slowly progress to it. So, you start with like something kind of silly that, like a shared thing that we all have that's just like, there's, you're really not risking anything. And that makes you feel a little bit more comfortable, and then maybe you go deeper, and maybe you go deeper, and maybe you go deeper. Um, so there's definitely um, a place for the early part of that process of mutual progressive revelation, because it's the thing that sets the stage and starts to create intimacy and the psychological safety needed for people to actually step into more vulnerability. And that's where the the really the bigger magic happens.
0: Mm. Mutual progressive revelation. That's a really great, I hadn't heard that before, but that's a really great way to think about how we, how we build trust over a period of time. And then we, we each obviously take a step towards each other and progress it. Um, and I, by the way, I I loved Dr. Arthur Aaron's 36 questions to fall in love. And I think I remember from the article that, uh, one couple got married after they did it because it was (laughs) right, like 36 questions and then you stare at each other for four minutes and they ended up together. Yeah. Um, so here's what I'm curious about. I mean in the the world that we're living in now and you've talked about this um a little bit and I think you know many of us are feeling this sense of like gosh we're so divided. Um and so when I think about belonging and then I I then lay over the kind of context of the world we live in today, which is in the U.S., incredibly partisan um, and, you know, and incredibly divided. How do you how do you think about belonging and the division that we're experiencing? And, you know, does belonging in some way make that, you know, make the division worse? Like, how how do we think about this?
1: so belonging in a certain way can, because if belonging happens to be wrapped around, uh, a certain identity, um, and part of that identity, you know, there's an element of that identity that tells you that anybody who doesn't, uh, act or look or believe the way that I look is not one of us. Like there's us and there's them. Um, yeah, then it can create an incredibly, um, it can create a lot of divide, you know, and that's kind of what's been happening. And that's what we see happening in the political world. You know, it's always been an issue, Mm -hmm. but people have really realized that identity politics um, is, it really drives people to vote (laughs) and it's massively polarizing. It will keep them on one side or another side for years and years and years, which is, you know, good for your party. It is horrific for humanity, you know, because it's it's one thing for somebody to back away from, you know, like something that they're thinking about that they don't see as a central part of their identity, mm-hmm. to reconsider it. When they see it as literally a central part of their identity, it's nearly impossible um, for them to leave that behind. And that's where we are right now, you know. So you have people that belong to a certain identity, and and part of the rules of that identity is like everything who do, everyone who doesn't believe and look and see the world that I do, um, is not one of us. And in fact. This is where it gets really ugly and scary in my mind. Um, Now we're making the leap to say they're not human either. Mm -hmm. Like we're literally um, dehumanizing people who we do not see as sharing the fundamental drivers of our identity. And that is a horrendous, horrendous um, place for humanity to be um, because it allows us to justify or rationalize treating other people in a way that we would never treat them, but for the fact that we see them as less than human. And that's terrifying. Um, you know, I, I, this is such a complex issue. And it's why so many people, I've talked to a lot of people about this. I've asked people about it, you know, like in conversation. And there are very few good answers right now. There's a whole lot of frustration. Um, part of the way that I've been thinking about it lately is if we can engage people on the level of values instead of beliefs as a first Um, step into conversation, we have the potential to potentially um, to to know people on that that level before we get to their beliefs. And in doing so, at least when we can identify shared values with other human beings, it kind of forces us to acknowledge their humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, And once we see them as being human, it makes it a little bit harder to dissociate from them, even if they don't believe the same things that we believe, because if somebody if you meet another parent who like, you know, is completely divided in their belief about a particular common popular issue or political position, but you never have that conversation. The first conversation you have is you're both in a hospital and you both have children who are dealing with, with absolutely terrifying, life-threatening illnesses, you know, and you have the conversation about how the most important thing in the world to you is your family. Mm-hmm. And how you do anything for them and you share about like your kids and you share about your values and you share about, right? Um, that creates a, the opportunity and invitation to see each other, um, to know each other very differently. And then if the conversation, like God willing, everybody comes out okay and everyone's healed and everyone's healthy. And the conversation then can go to a place where if you start to see the world differently, there's a, there's a different foundation, upon which you can start to have the conversation about those beliefs. Um, And so I've been thinking a lot about um, engaging earlier on the level of values before beliefs.
0: How do we know when it's a value or a belief? Do we (laughs) conflate those? (laughs) I'm imagining we do a lot.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think they can be related, Um, but one is more DNA level. In my mind, values is more like it's it's the fiber of who we are. It's it's um, what is what is deeply important and very likely will be important to me for life. Whereas belief is in this moment in time, this is how I see things, mm-hmm. um, and that's something that's capable of shifting. But again, it's harder to shift that when somebody says, "And this is who I am." It's not just what I believe, but this is who I am.
0: This is who um, I am. Yeah. Interesting. So so part of our story is probably also peeling back, you know, where are my beliefs and where are my values? And I'm almost imagining like a silly T-chart of here's what's valuable and here's what I've been believing.
1: Yeah. Um, And I think it probably takes some time to get to each of those, you know, yeah. some really deep reflection and then stepping away and coming back to it.
0: Yeah. So so when you think about, you know, you've been doing this for 10 years and you think about your own. Journey, and you know, I, I know you've you you were a lawyer before this, right? In a very and then, past life, yeah. <laughs> In a, a very very past, very life. past life, at this one, yeah. <laughs> um, and and now you're a podcast host and a CEO among many other things. You know, when you think about your story, I'm curious what you want it to be.
1: Mm. Um. So. Interestingly, I don't have a particular story that I want to tell. I have a way that I want to experience each day.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I feel like the stories will unfold the way they need to unfold if I sort of stay to that. So I think about, you know, on any given day, you're going to have the opportunity to say yes or no to a whole bunch of different things. Um, mm-hmm. And I kind of think to myself, you know, like whenever I'm thinking about investing my effort in something, will this give me the opportunity to, to spend the greatest amount of time possible absorbed in activities and relationships that fill me up, that nourish me, that make me come alive um, while surrounding myself with people I cannot get enough of and hopefully benefiting somebody who doesn't even know that this thing is happening. Um, If I can hold myself to that standard, and I can't always, like this is an aspirational standard, Um, Mm -hmm. but I find the more that I do, the more that I devote my energy in a way that, that centers that, the more the stories that, that I would love my life to be made up of unfold the way they need to unfold.
0: That sounds like my new life manifesto.
1: <laughs> Speaking
0: <laughs> of nothing being new, that was new, though. I've never heard that. That's that's really beautiful.
1: Yeah, it's just, you know, it's funny, because I've been thinking about, about legacy um, on and off for a couple of years now, and, I, and I, I'm not really connected to the notion of legacy. And to me, it's more about, like, how am I living this day, and then this day, and then this day, and then this day. And I really just feel like the story that would become a legacy is comprised of you just, you know, like trying to honor whatever is important to you and valuable and, and commit your actions and your decisions to that on a regular basis. And the rest will unfold the way it needs to unfold.
0: Yeah. It's back to the micro stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, So, you know, we normally do the three big questions, but um, I want to do it a little different. So I'm just going to I'm going to add one word in here. So I'd love for you to complete these three questions. One is better humans today are. Open. Better work today is.
1: Derived from the opportunity to express who you genuinely are.
0: And a better world today has compassion love it thank you so much for joining me jonathan
1: my pleasure thanks so much for having me
0: that was author podcaster speaker and all-around incredible human jonathan fields check out his newest show it's called sparked and it's also on the linkedin podcast network and of course good life project always has amazing content one big thing before we go we are living in a world right now and in a time that has so much polarization Were yes or no, in or out, with or against. And depending on the culture where you live, I'm wondering what if we stopped asking what you believe as a way to divide and started getting curious about what you value as a way to connect. And then letting our values, as Jonathan said, guide each day instead of our beliefs. I've been using the phrase for myself, how do I hold my values tightly and my beliefs lightly? Certainly not easy, but it is a pretty simple idea. And then how do I do my best to live each day with those at the center of my experience? If today's episode resonated with you, leave a rating before you go. And even more helpful, write a quick review. It helps other listeners like you find this show and grow with our community. And you can always find me on LinkedIn, writing about human potential. In the Arena is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Michelle O'Brien, Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show, Florencia Eriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is head of news production. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming on the journey with me, and I will see you next week.